1: Europe, the early 1930s. A bright, driven young man with degrees in language, history, and culture fervently searches southern France for a lost relic, the legendary Holy Grail.
2: The man has an uneasy alliance with the Nazis, who also seek the Grail. He knows in his heart that he has to find it first.
1: As Hitler's Germany grows more powerful, this man comes to understand that he has a duty to find the grail before his Nazi partners. His greatest fear isn't that he won't find the grail, but that it will fall into the wrong hands.
2: No, this isn't the plot of an Indiana Jones movie. It's the real-life story of the man who inspired the character.
1: Otto Rahn, with the financial backing of the Nazi SS, spent close to a decade seeking the Holy Grail. He hoped to use the Nazi's support to locate and keep the Grail for himself.
2: As far as history knows, he never found it. But his theories about the Grail's location might be the secret to finally uncovering the mystery behind the Cup of Christ.
1: In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth.
2: Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries on the Parcast Network. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram, at Parcast, and Twitter, at Parcast Network.
1: And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to Parcast.com merch for more information.
2: You can listen to previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of Parcast's other shows wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: This is our final episode on the Holy Grail, the cup that Jesus Christ drank from at the Last Supper before his crucifixion.
2: Last week, we took a look at the Grail's origins, its appearances in various stories across Europe, and some of the key players involved in its history.
1: This week, we'll continue our search for the Grail. First, we'll look at theories on whether or not the Grail is real or a millennia-old remnant of folklore.
2: One of the biggest theories surrounding the Grail is that its legend actually originated from Celtic mythology, which was later blended with Christian lore during the Middle Ages and the rise of the King Arthur canon.
1: Other theories suggest the Grail may have simply been a symbolic literary device that represented the story of Christ and Christian religious practices. If that's the case, there isn't an actual object to be found.
2: Then, assuming the grail is a real object, we'll look at theories that the Knights Templar moved it out of the Holy Land in the Middle Ages for safekeeping.
1: If the Templars didn't deposit it for safekeeping, they may have passed it on to the Freemasons, a fraternal group that adopted the Knights Templar's goals and secrets after the Knights Templar were officially disbanded around 1500.
2: Finally, we'll take a look at some present-day theories about where the Grail is located. Considering that there are over 200 claims for the Grail's whereabouts in Europe alone, we'll focus on the most likely and most interesting. The common conception of the Holy Grail is that it was the cup Jesus drank from at the Last Supper And that later, that same cup was used to collect drops of his blood during the crucifixion.
1: The blood of Christ gave the grail divine, restorative powers and made it into the stuff of legend. Since the first written records of the grail, it has been a subject of obsession for medieval knights, Renaissance artists,
2: Hollywood, and Adolf Hitler himself. But there have long been theories that the holy grail isn't a grail at all. Rather, it's a symbolic phrase meant to stand for Christ himself.
1: In fact, numerous historians believe the Grail never really existed. What they mean by that is, while Jesus did drink from a cup at the Last Supper, that cup was soon lost to time. The mythic artifact we know as the Holy Grail was actually a symbol for the spread of Christianity and the divine life and rejuvenation believers found when
2: following the religion. Instead of looking for a spectacular but mythical cup, these historians believe that the Grail legend actually originates from early European folklore.
1: In our last episode, we discussed how the Holy Grail isn't mentioned anywhere in the modern Bible. In fact, it doesn't actually show up in any written documentation until the King Arthur legends of the early
2: 1100s. Now, there are some arguments that this exclusion from the records was deliberate. Christian scholars couldn't openly depict or chronicle Christian iconography in the first few centuries AD without risking persecution. However, the more likely reason is that the Grail legend didn't come from Christianity at all, but from an older mythology that was much closer to home in Arthurian England the Celts.
1: In Celtic lore, Cauldrons had magical properties similar to those we associate with the Holy Grail, including the power to heal wounds, give life, and grant wisdom. The earliest written Celtic accounts of magical cauldrons date to the late 7th or early 8th century, but the oral tradition is naturally much older. In fact, myths of Celtic cauldrons go back as far as the 2nd century AD.
2: Cauldrons were the main vessels used for cooking and drinking in England for hundreds of years, so it's really no surprise that the folklore from this region would associate cauldrons with life-giving properties. Cauldrons literally served life in the form of food and water. In the
1: 1100s, when the Arthurian legends were first becoming popular, the folk of England would have been familiar with the major tropes of Celtic mythology, Just as the Romans had absorbed large parts of the ancient Greek mythology, it's very possible, even likely, that the Arthurian legends were updated retellings of these Celtic stories, but with elements of Christianity added to appeal to listeners in the 1100s. One of the clearest connections between the Arthur and Celtic folklore is the story of Bran the Blessed and his cauldron.
2: This tale has a lot in common with Arthurian legends. The cauldron is retrieved from a giantess on an otherworldly lake, which bears resemblance to Avalon, the mythical afterworld of heroes in the Arthur legends. Bran's retrieval of this cauldron establishes him as a hero, as was the case with Arthur and the sword in the stone.
1: The story of Bran also overlaps with the story of the Fisher King, which we discussed in the last episode. Bran injured his foot and used the cauldron to heal himself. The Fisher King also has an injured thigh and needs the Holy Grail to heal himself. In both stories, the cauldron or grail is stored at a remote location to keep it safe and falls under the protection of a royal family.
2: The Celtic goddess of war and death, Morrigan, gave her name and bleak tendencies to the character Morgan Le Fay, Arthur's dark sister. Merlin has similar roots in the Celtic mythological figure, Merthyn.
1: Sir Geoffrey of Monmouth, one of the most influential early writers of King Arthur legends, used Merthen's stories as the basis of his
2: version of Merlin. Arthur himself may even be an adaptation. Many historians believe Arthur was actually inspired by a Celtic mythic hero, Gwydion, who predates Arthur by several centuries.
1: During this era, there was a rising interest in chronicling the histories of nations and historical figures. In doing so, the historians of the time would build upon the histories of older civilizations. It was typical for authors of the time to put heavier influences for their own countries in the stories. For example, the French character Lancelot entered the canon via a French writer, Chrétien de Troyes.
2: There was an increased interest in establishing written histories of individual countries and major figures during the Dark Ages. This process likely led to a blend of myth and real events, including the story of King Arthur.
1: One ulterior goal of spreading these newly established histories was to instill a sense of national pride among the common people. Stories of mythic heroes presented as real-life leaders were one way to contribute to that goal.
2: Either way, Celtic lore was regionally present by this time, and it's likely that it would have mixed with and influenced the Arthur legends, and with them, stories of the Grail.
1: There are, in fact, real Celtic cauldrons dating back to the second and third centuries BCE, which lines up with the story of Bran the Blessed. The Gundestrop cauldron, for example, was discovered in a bog in Denmark in 1891. It dates to 200 BCE to 300 CE, is made of pure silver, and is ornately decorated with
2: images of kings. This description makes sense when we compare it to typical descriptions of the Holy Grail. Precious metal, highly decorated, and dating back to roughly 1 AD.
1: So, assuming the Holy Grail really was just a story device representing the spread of Christianity and the divine rewards belief offered followers, and not an actual endowed cup, it leaves us with another question. Why do so many people think it was real?
2: Well, we can't confirm that first theory. While the Grail as a symbol is a valuable story either way, there's still the possibility that the Grail of Legends exists. There are just so many people who might have come in contact with the Grail in the thousand-year period between the death of Jesus Christ and the beginning of Grail lore. And since the actual cup used by Christ has never been found, there will always be room for speculation.
1: At the same point in history that the Arthurian legends were reaching their zenith, another order of knights was making its own history, which would soon evolve into mythology. These were, of course, the Knights Templar.
2: The Templar Order was established in the year 1120 as a group of warrior monks dedicated to shepherding pilgrims on trips to the Holy Land.
1: There was a high demand for their services during this time. It was a long journey from Europe to Jerusalem, beset with all manner of outlaws and rogues. The Templars became quite wealthy from protecting travelers.
2: They also gained significant funding from kings and lords of Europe, as well as the church itself, which declared the Templar mission to conquer the Holy Land for Christianity to be a divine ordinance.
1: As they grew in power and wealth, the structure of the Templar organization changed. Because the Templars had arguably the most secure network that spanned from Europe to the Middle East, they were in a position to offer financial security to the thousands of wealthy
2: Europeans who wanted to travel to the Holy Land. People could deposit their money at a Templar church in Europe and then withdraw from that amount at Templar churches in the Holy Land. In short, the Templars became one of the first international banks. The
1: Templars' transportation network is noteworthy when it comes to the possibility that the Holy Grail was moved out of Jerusalem.
2: If anyone could have gotten the Grail out of the city in secret, it would have been the Templars.
1: And as the Templars became a dominant military, religious, and financial force, they became even more secretive in their rituals and leadership.
2: This naturally gave rise to rumors that the Templars were taking on secret missions from the church, which may have included the recovery and protection of the Holy Grail. But the question remains, if this is true, where did the Knights
0: Templar put it?
1: We'll get back to our story after this.
0: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit AnytimeFitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story
1: The Knights Templar were a dominant force in Europe
2: and the Middle East for over 200 years. But then in the early 14th century, King Philip of France declared the Knights Templar to be heretics in an attempt to avoid paying the substantial debts owed by the French crown. He had the once-respected knights hunted down and raided their treasuries.
1: Now, it's possible that King Philip may have claimed the grail during this purge, assuming the Templars had it. But there's no record of this. And it seems unlikely that King Philip wouldn't publicize that he had the Grail, if he ever found it. If it was in the Templars' possession during this time, then it was hidden somewhere that even the King of France wouldn't be able to find.
2: Philip's war against the Templars ended up only fueling more rumors about them. Philip was not the most popular king. And later legends would frame the Templars as an order of righteous warriors who protected the Grail from a tyrant given the
1: expansion of arthurian legend that was also going on at this time it's no surprise that the knights templar were and still are often compared to knights of the round table and just as the stories of arthur and his knights of the round table were largely about the quest for the grail the stories of the real-life templar knights came to focus on the same subject
2: however following the decline of the templars in the 14th century stories about them seem to fizzle out.
1: That makes sense. It would be hard for writers of the time to track the deeds and exploits of an order that was no longer in the public eye.
2: But just because the Templars had fallen from their once prominent place of power doesn't mean that all secret societies with ties to the Grail just went away.
1: The biggest comparison here is the Freemasons a fraternal order of stonemasons who began adopting Templar symbols and rituals in the early 16th century.
2: Where the Knights Templar started as an organization to shepherd pilgrims to the Holy Land, the Freemasons began as an organization of skilled stonecutters who officially organized as a fraternal order in 1717.
1: They had special lodges where members could eat, sleep, store tools, and swap trade secrets
2: those trade secrets were closely protected which played into the same tales of mysticism and secret adventure as the templars especially since the freemasons were said to operate with secret codes
1: the original mandate of the freemasons had been to act as a sort of guild one that protected the skills of its members by guarding secret methods of stonemasonry but with the formation of the premier Grand Lodge of England in the 1700s, they started taking on actively liberal religious policies. The church at large disapproved, and thus the Freemasons became more secretive in their operations.
2: This was probably the era where the Freemasons began to take on the history of the Templars. Sometime during the early or mid-18th century, the Freemasons began utilizing Templar symbols and ritual practices within their order. The mission of Freemasonry became associated with protecting Christianity from corrupt leadership, similar to the Templars. Freemason groups
1: still exist today in Europe and the U.S. The earliest U.S. lodges appeared in Pennsylvania in the 1700s, not long after their expansion in Europe.
2: Most information about the Freemasons is steeped in secrecy, pointing to a hidden inner working that only the truly chosen know about.
1: While there isn't a lot to go on here in terms of actual records, it's possible that if the Templars had the grail, it would have fallen to the protection of the Freemasons after their disbanding. If it was with them, it may have made it to
2: the U.S. The Freemason association with the Holy Grail has largely come from historians who look back on the era when the Freemasons were first established. From the 1400s to the 1900s, the Grail seemed to once again fall out of the public consciousness. But then, in the early 19th century, there was a major resurgence of interest in Arthurian legend as a byproduct of the Romantic movement that was coming to define most popular art and literature.
1: There was a sudden demand for medieval stories. Knights, kings, fair maidens, and foul wizards all made for excellent Romanticism subject matter.
2: Given the depth of stories just about King Arthur, he naturally became one of the most popular medieval literary figures.
1: In 1816, Thomas Mallory's famous translated and collected work of Arthurian legends, La Morte d'Arthur, was published in England for the first time since 1683. This reprinting inspired a wave of poets to retell the stories, including William Wordsworth's 1835 poem, The Egyptian Maid, which specifically referenced the Holy Grail.
2: Alfred Tennyson is also credited with the resurgence of the King Arthur stories. While he started with poems that barely referenced the King, he eventually did an entire retelling of Arthurian legend for Victorian audiences. First published in 1859 under the title The Idols of the King, these retellings were a huge success.
1: In Tennyson's interpretation, Arthur was adjusted for contemporary values and showed an ideal Victorian version of a medieval man struggling to build a perfect kingdom on earth.
2: His work was so popular that it led to seven modernizations of the original Le Morte d'Artour by the end of the century.
1: Remember, Le Morte d'Artour was already a modernized collection of Arthur's stories for its time— The original written tales were 500 years older, and the oral stories were 1,000 years older.
2: At the turn of the 20th century, Arthurian legend was back in the cultural psyche, and with it, the Grail.
1: These stories went on to inspire not just writers, but historians and archaeologists interested in the veracity of Western history and
2: legend. In the early 1900s, the Holy Grail found a new fan who would end up giving his life for the search.
1: Otto Rahn was a German writer and philogene, which is a fancy way of saying he studied languages and historical records, specifically to investigate their authenticity. He received his degree in 1924 from the University of Gießen and immediately got to
2: work. Otto had been interested in the legend of the Grail for as long as he could remember. He believed the stories were true that the Grail was real and that it had been smuggled out of the Holy Land during the Crusades by the Templars. His research led him to believe that it had last been in possession of the Cathars, a sect of Christianity that thrived in southern France and Italy from the 12th to 14th centuries.
1: The Cathars flourished for around two centuries, but, like the Templars, they were eventually hunted down during the 14th century Inquisition for being heretics. Otto believed that the Cathars had hidden the Grail during their persecution, and that wherever they left it was the Grail's current resting
2: place. Otto got this idea from the Parts of All legend, which dated to the same time period. In the last episode, we discussed the tale of Parts of All, a boy who became a knight of Arthur's Round Table and ultimately sworn protector of the Holy Grail.
1: Otto's entire field of study was looking at the evolution of language and the validity of historical documentation. He noticed a pattern that linked the German parts-of-all-poem and specific locations in southern France right around the area that the Cathars had operated out of. Ron came to the conclusion that the Cathar fortress Montségur was actually Monsalvish, the castle that held the grail in the parts-of-all-story.
2: So in the summer of 1929, Otto settled into the Languedoc region of southern France and began his search for the grail. Based on his research, he focused his efforts on the ruins of a Cathar temple fortress on Mount Montségur and the surrounding area.
1: According to later 20th century historian Nigel Pennick, this area was a convergence of multiple points of interest from Cathar grail legend Carcassonne Castle, the Holy Mountain Montségur, and the Church of Rennes-le-Château.
2: In his biography on Ron, Pennock writes, quote, In 1244, the heretical Cathars had made their last heroic stand against the Catholic crusade, which finally triumphed in their destruction. Here, tradition affirms that on the night before the final assault, three Cathars carrying the sacred relics of the faith slipped unnoticed over the wall. They carried away the magical regalia of the Merovingian King Dagobert II and a cup reputed to be the Holy Grail.
1: Pennick notes that despite centuries of questers failing to find the grail, Otto believed he could. He specifically used the sacred geometry of the church, which was based on old Druid traditions known by the Cathars, to locate a series of underground caverns the sacred geometry was a seemingly intentional pattern that dictated castle locations across southern France and, allegedly, the location of treasures within each of those castles. Supposedly, if you looked at a pentagram layered over a circle on a map of the region, each important point lay on the intersection of lines. Some were churches, and some were possible locations of the Holy Grail.
2: Otto documented his experiences exploring these caverns in his book, Crusade Against the Grail, which was published in 1933. In the book, Otto describes his experience.
1: Quote, In time out of mind, in an epoch where remoteness has been barely touched by modern historical science, it was used as a temple consecrated to the Iberian god Ehomber, god of the sun. Between two monoliths, one which had crumbled, the steep path leads into the giant vestibule of the Cathedral of Lombrive. Between the stalagmites of white limestone, between walls of a deep brown color and the brilliant rock crystal, the path leads down into the bowels of the mountain. A hall 260 feet in height served as a cathedral for the heretics."
2: Despite the discovery of the caverns and a fairly strong historical argument for the influence of Druid culture on the Cathars, Otto's expeditions were ultimately unsuccessful. However, Crusade Against the Grail was a hit in Germany. The book's
1: number one superfan was a man named Heinrich Himmler. Himmler was a senior official in the Nazi Party and one of the people most directly responsible for the Holocaust. He was also at the top of the SS, the group that was essentially Hitler's guard and paramilitary service.
2: Hitler and the Nazis were obsessed with ancient historical artifacts, particularly those of Christian significance. Himmler offered Otto full financial backing and the support of the SS in return for Otto's loyalty and possession of the Grail when he found it.
1: Otto wasn't immediately
2: sold. Though he was
1: German, He didn't believe the Nazis' anti-Semitic ideology. Otto was also gay, meaning that he was at risk of being sent to a concentration camp himself. But those fears seemed to pale in comparison to his burning desire to find the Holy Grail. After some consideration, Otto took Himmler up on his offer. He famously told a friend questioning his decision, A man has to eat what was I supposed to do? Turn Himmler down? End quote.
2: Otto officially joined the Nazi party in the mid-1930s, and his quest for the grail continued.
1: He published his second book, Lucifer's Court, A Heretic's Journey in Search of the Lightbringers, in 1937. This book chronicled additional excavations in the south of France, including an expedition to Iceland that appears to have been commissioned and funded by the SS.
2: However, details of the mission are scarce, so it's unclear what evidence led the Nazis to suspect the Grail was in Iceland.
1: The second book was once again a hit with Himmler, who ordered thousands of copies. It was read widely among the Nazis, who often had a mystical, cultish bent to their tastes.
2: Some of these beliefs were similar to Otto's own, including the idea that the Germans could trace their genealogy back to the ancient Druids and maybe even Jesus Christ himself.
1: Some Nazis truly believed the ancient artifacts they sought had magical powers but most simply felt that artifacts such as the Holy Grail would help turn Germany into the cultural and historical capital of the world, assuming, of course, that the Axis powers won the war. Whatever the reason for the obsession with ancient artifacts, the Holy Grail fit right in with the Nazi agenda. In
2: 1937, Otto Rahn's favor with the Nazi leadership was running out. Despite the success of his second book, He had been using Nazi money for nearly four years and had turned up nothing. Even worse, he had been caught with other men more than once, and the Nazi leadership was starting to take notice.
1: Otto's funding was finally revoked in late 1937. Still a member of the SS, he was assigned to guard duty in the Dachau concentration camp as punishment for both his failure to find the grail and for his sexual orientation. His time in the camp put him face to face with the horrors that were being committed there. And in 1939, Otto tried to resign from the SS and leave the Nazis behind completely.
2: The Nazis didn't take kindly to deserters. Otto was forced to run for his life. And in March of 1939, he was found frozen to death in the Tyrolean Alps.
1: As far as we know, Ron never found the grail. But his story lived on, most notably in Steven Spielberg's Indiana Jones films, which were largely inspired by Ron's exploits.
2: By exploits, we mean his search for the ancient artifacts of cultural significance.
1: As far as we know, Otto Ron never brandished a whip.
2: Given that we don't know exactly when Otto died, It is possible that he did manage to locate the grail and the Nazis recovered it when they found his body. The grail could have disappeared along with the countless other works of art and valuables that the Nazis seized during their reign.
1: Then again, the Nazis tended to display their most prized works as signs of their power and right to rule. If they had found the grail, in all likelihood, it would have been the crown jewel
2: of their collection. But lastly, Otto was chasing clues from a poem in oral history passed down from the 1300s. Not exactly reliable sources. It's quite possible that even if the grail existed, he was looking in the wrong place.
1: So with all that in mind, what's most likely? Does the Holy Grail exist? And where is it?
2: Up next we'll explore the most likely conclusion to the grail mystery. Now back to our story.
1: So assuming the grail exists, where is it now? In this final section, we're going to look at some of the more interesting theories as to where the grail might really be.
2: Some historians go all the way back to the Grail's source, Jerusalem, the first year AD.
1: One major theory is that the Grail never actually left Jerusalem.
2: This makes sense. It's always easier for something to stay put than to move.
1: We now know from our research that the myths of the Grail's powers almost certainly weren't added to the lore until centuries after Jesus's time. This means that in the time immediately after the crucifixion, the Holy Grail would have been viewed as just another cup. Instead of the polished metal we imagine, it could have been made of pottery or another cheap material. It's possible that no one placed much significance on the cup, and thus, it likely was lost among a collection of other dishware and dissolved to dust over the centuries. It's still in Jerusalem, but as dirt.
2: However, it is possible that someone, maybe the disciples of Joseph of Arimathea, did make an effort to keep the grail. To that end, the grail was preserved and hidden in the sewers beneath the city.
1: It's not a bad hiding place. The sewers of Jerusalem were and still are extremely complicated by design. Inhabitants of the city used to use the sewers to hide from invaders.
2: If the grail is hidden in the sewers, that would also explain why no one has found it yet. Jerusalem is an old city and excavations there are considered very dangerous because of the potential structural damage they could cause. The Jerusalem government rarely grants permits for any kind of dig within the city border. The possibility of finding the Holy Grail just isn't seen as being worth the risk.
1: So, the Grail could be in Jerusalem, either as dirt or in a place where no one is likely to find it. Looking beyond the holy city, assuming the grail did actually leave Jerusalem for safekeeping, where would it be now?
2: The first line of theories follows the Joseph of Arimathea stories, which we discussed in the last episode. In Christian canon, including the Bible, Joseph of Arimathea was responsible for the burial of Christ's body after the crucifixion.
1: This would have given Joseph access to the Holy Grail and to Christ's blood, which he is said to have caught in the cup after his death.
2: According to various legends, Joseph was the person who brought Christianity to England. Because he's considered to be the person most likely to have the Grail in his possession immediately after the crucifixion, it is possible that Joseph took the Grail with him to England where it still resides.
1: Joseph is also credited with building the first church in England, and some think he may have hidden the grail there. But since we don't know for sure where that church would have been, or if it ever existed at all, this is another theory that's impossible to confirm.
2: The more common theory is that Joseph hid the grail in the Well of Glastonbury, which is also known as the Chalice Well.
1: Most archaeologists typically date the well as being continuously used for at least 2,000 years, meaning it would have been around when Joseph allegedly brought the grail to England.
2: And second, the chalice well has long been associated with healing properties, likely dating back to religious worship by the Druids. After the onset of Christianity, the well was associated both with saints and with King Arthur. In fact, Glastonbury
1: is linked to the Grail and other Arthurian legends. Some historians believe Glastonbury Tor to be the real-life location of Avalon, and through the years, residents of Glastonbury have claimed that the Glastonbury Abbey is the resting place of King Arthur, Excalibur, and the Grail.
2: However, none of these claims have been proven. Glastonbury officials have a reputation for making sweeping claims when they're seeking funding to restore and maintain the abbey. It's possible Arthur really was buried here, and that this space inspired stories of Avalon. But if the grail is down in the well somewhere, it's probably wishful thinking.
1: We also don't have any historical evidence to back up Joseph of Arimathea ever bringing the grail to England. Remember, it doesn't show up in documentation until the 1100s, and the first historical mention of it places it in the Holy Land, not England.
2: And there are plenty of other churches across Europe that claim to have the Grail. After all, if the Templars or Freemasons had held it in their possession, it could have been moved anywhere on the continent.
1: One of the more interesting theories for the Grail's location is Roslyn Chapel in Scotland.
2: Roslyn Chapel was constructed in the mid-15th century, at the height of Arthurian and Grail lore.
1: What makes this chapel particularly interesting is its strong ties to, can you guess, the Freemasons.
2: The chapel is famous for its extensive underground chambers, which are decorated with elaborate carvings and rumored to be home to secret vaults and chambers. The fact that no plans or subterranean imaging of the building layout exist furthers the theory that there are secret Templar or Freemason caches somewhere beneath the chapel.
1: Another popular story points to the famous apprentice pillar. The highly skilled carvings show imagery that doesn't make sense temporally. Some images resemble corn, for instance, which wouldn't be discovered for another hundred years
2: supporters of this theory point to the powers granted by the grail phenomenal carving skills and knowledge of items across the world
1: however while this theory is noticeably widespread it's actually very easily debunked as we've said the Freemasons weren't formally organized until the 16th century, about 100 years after Roslyn Chapel was built.
2: While it's possible that members of the Freemason Guild did have a hand in the construction of the chapel, it's highly unlikely that any symbols or carvings within Roslyn Chapel have anything to do with Masonic practices, especially since the Freemasons didn't start using symbols till the mid-16th century.
1: In fact... The Freemasons weren't linked to Roslyn Chapel in any way until 1980. The story that connected Roslyn to the Freemasons was, of all things, a Batman comic.
2: While that, of course, dismisses the theory, it is noteworthy how, as a global culture, we are so enamored with the Holy Grail that a story in a superhero comic can end up being considered by some theorists as actual evidence of the Grail's location.
1: But... Then again, is it really all that surprising? The Holy Grail legend's defining attribute is the mesh of fiction and history, and how the storytellers of any given era blend existing lore about the Grail into modern canons. We see that in the stories of King Arthur, in Indiana Jones, and yes, even Batman.
2: While it seems more and more likely that if the grail did exist, it was lost to time centuries ago. But historians, archaeologists, and authors seem bent on keeping the grail in the public consciousness.
1: That passion may have paid off. One of the most recent theories as to the grail's location came to light in 2011. Historians Margarita Torres and José Manuel Ortega del Rio we were studying a real goblet in Léon, France when they discovered documentation about its acquisition.
2: The goblet of the Infanta Doña Uraca, daughter of King Fernando I of Léon, came into the Basilica Léon in the mid-11th century. As a reminder, that's contemporaneous with the earliest written grail stories.
1: The goblet was a gift from a Muslim leader in Muslim-held southern Spain.
2: The duo found documents dating its history. The parchment specifically identified the goblet as being made out of agate with a chip missing from the top. This matched the princess goblet perfectly. Previously, the goblet's origins were unknown beyond it being a gift. The rest of the parchment's
1: contents were a game-changer. According to the documents, there was a second, older cup inside the goblet, and that cup was the sacred chalice of the Christians.
2: In other words the holy grail
1: it had been preserved all this time by the agate overlayer, which must have been applied in the early centuries following jesus's crucifixion according to the documents muslim forces from egypt took the chalice from jerusalem to cairo around 400 to 500 a.d basically because it was an important christian item that they were able to smuggle out
2: from there they placed it in storage for a few hundred years.
1: Eventually, an Egyptian leader gave it as a gift to a Muslim emir in Mediterranean Spain in return for assistance during an Egyptian famine.
2: The emir then gave the grail to Ferdinand, but the records remained in Cairo, obscuring its true identity for nearly a millennium until Torres and Del Rio confirmed that there was indeed a second chalice hidden within the infant's goblet.
1: Carbon dating confirms the internal chalice originated in 200 B.C.
2: to 100 A.D., the correct date to have coexisted with Christ. The Egyptian parchments account for its movement and its 1,000 years in the Leon Basilica. However, no additional documents have been found to confirm the Grail's movement from Jerusalem to Cairo or to confirm its existence in Jerusalem.
1: That means it still has 1,000 years of history entirely unaccounted for and it's the closest known item to being the Holy Grail.
2: Finally, one last-ditch theory on the Grail's present-day location is that it's locked away in one of many high-security vaults.
1: Royal collections, Swiss vaults, the Vatican, and the U.S. Mint are all contenders.
2: Of course, it could also be in a hidden, very secret international crypt or some ancient hidden cave in the middle of a field.
1: If you can't tell from our tone, this theory basically boils down to the grail is magic and important, so some secret group hid it in a secret and
2: important place. Templars, FBI agents, or Interpol, it's always the same structure of a highly elite group putting this mysterious object somewhere that normal people can't hurt themselves with it.
1: We think this thread of theories is pretty unlikely, as they rely on the grail both existing and having mystical powers, which is unlikely.
2: Given that it can't be dangerous if it's not magical, we believe if a collector group actually had the grail, they would want to display it. There's no real reason to keep it a secret.
1: And with hundreds of claims of the Grail's true location, it seems like someone would want the glory of exposing it if they really found it.
2: Taking all of these theories into account, we believe that it's most likely that the Holy Grail did actually exist in the sense of an original cup. Given
1: Jesus's commitment to living modestly, It most likely was plain or simply decorated and made from a material that wouldn't survive thousands of years.
2: The magical properties of the grail were probably inspired by Celtic myth, given the strong similarities to Celtic cauldron myths, and historians work showing the heavy influence Celtic and Welsh myths had on Arthurian legend more generally.
1: As these myths grew popular, the cup grew more famous, In the 1,000 years since its first written telling, lots of people speculated on the truth of the cup or updated the stories.
2: This is important, mostly because it accounts for the hundreds of available theories on what the grail is and where it ended up. However, the farther away these theories get from Jerusalem or Celtic myth, the less likely they are. In all
1: likelihood, the actual cup is still in Jerusalem, either hidden beneath the city or lost to time.
2: If the grail did make it out of Jerusalem, we believe the most likely candidate is the 2011 discovery in Spain.
1: Even if it's not the grail itself, it's the most likely candidate for people believing it was the grail when it left Jerusalem for Egypt.
2: While carbon dating puts this cup at the right time, there's no way to know for sure if Jesus ever interacted with this particular vessel. Plus, there are still 1,000 years that are unaccounted for in its history. Because of that,
1: it's always possible there is another grail, the real grail, still out there, waiting to be found.
2: Even then, the true grail might have been with us all along, as the long-held cultural history of a mystical cup, able to grant wisdom, heal, and provide hope to those who believe in it.
1: One thing is for certain. The Holy Grail is a staple of Western folklore, forever preserved in storytelling, popular culture, and a desire to know the truth.
2: Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries, We will be back next Thursday. You can
1: find more episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of Parcast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory.
2: Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review.
1: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time.
2: See you next Thursday.
1: And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Taylor Cleland and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.